follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Susan Abel Lieberman, Ph.D., so it's Dr. Susan Abel Lieberman. We're going to be talking about her new book, Death, Dying, and Dessert, Reflections on 20 Questions About Dying. Uh, And Susan says it's clear that many of us, uh, we understand that we're going to die, but we just don't expect it to happen in our lifetimes, how true that is. When someone asks me at a, she says, at a social gathering, what do I do? And I explain that I talk about death and dying. Uh, the person usually explains, well, you know, how interesting, and then just turns away and wants to talk about something else with somebody else. So, uh, but we're going to talk about it today. That's not what's going to happen on this show. We are going to talk to, about, uh, to Dr. Lieberman about uh, death, dying, and dessert. Whatever the please, dessert please is. call well, me Susan. Susan. Okay. Welcome to the show, Susan. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks. All right. I'll call you Susan. We're going to talk. We are, as I said, I'm not going to, we're not getting off the air. We're going to talk about death, dying, and dessert. And I guess my first question is, Susan, but why do, why is it necessary for us to talk about it? Why do we have to talk about it? Oh, because we're afraid. And like, you know, like the ghosts in the closet when we were kids, you need to open the closet and let it out and find it's not as big and as scary as you think. And my experience is that the more we talk and the more we learn and the more we learn from each other, the fewer anxieties and the less stress and the less chaos we have when we tumble unexpectedly usually into a healthcare crisis. I'm not saying that dying is easy or being dead is easy. That's truly hard. Well, I guess that's easy. <laughs> Get yeah, there. well, we don't know that yet. <laughs> we don't know that. We don't know that. And I have nothing to say about that <laughs> phase. But um, I, I, let me tell you how the book, how the title actually came about in the book. A little over three years ago, I started meeting with a group of women who were part of a larger group to talk about death and dying because I wanted to talk about it. I was studying to be a thanatologist, and it interested me. And at first, there were five of us who came to dinner. And the first dinner was at my house, and I thought, well, okay, what am I going to make for dinner? If we're going to talk about death and dying, I'm going to go get an angel food cake. It was a great discussion, and we decided to get together again. And for the second dinner, I got a devil's food cake, of course. And one of our members said, we need to call this group Death, Dying, and Dessert. And that, I, I never, if you hadn't told us how you got the, the title, I never would have thought of that. Well, dessert is <laughs> an important part of the dinner. Yeah. And, you know, and I feel, you're author, you're a life coach, an end-of-life coach, too, because I said author, Ph.D., obviously. But um, So I just wanted to add that. So, okay, so we got devil Actually, food I'm cake. Actually, an, I'm not an end-of-life coach. My interest and my expertise is talking with healthy people about end of life. Okay. That most people in the field of death and dying want to start when you walk into the circle of crisis. I want to talk to you long before you ever get there. So, how, all right, you want to talk to us long before we ever get there, but mm-hmm. you just mentioned even just a couple minutes ago that most of us are really and uh, reluctant to talk about death, if, especially if it doesn't seem imminent. It could be imminent. Uh, it could be the next day. We don't know, but if we don't think it's imminent, when do you start talking to people about death? When they're 20 or 30 or... You know, 
So here's here's the story. It's not like shopping at Target. A little red light doesn't go off over your head to say next up. So you don't know. I don't know when we're going to die. Three percent of us died before we're fifteen. So that's so horrific. We can't, I can't even talk about that. Seventy-two percent of us die after sixty-five. That isn't great if you're after sixty-five. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> but but you know you've had a life. But that means that 25% of us die between 15 and 65. And those are the people who just don't think it's going to happen. So when should you talk? You've gotten your first job and rented your first apartment. You should be putting your papers in order. You're getting married. Absolutely, you should talk. You've just had a child. You should talk. You're getting divorced. You should talk. Um, there's a major life change. Your parents are getting older and you begin to worry about them. You should talk. Because if you get in the habit of talking, then you're in the habit of talking. And when you reach a really difficult time, you you find that, you know, when you reach a difficult time, you don't want to talk. When somebody's just been told you have cancer, do you want to walk up to them and say, hey, how's your will? So in other words, be prepared and and don't Put yourself in a situation where you are in crisis, like, and you are yes. very vulnerable. And so is the rest of your family. Nobody wants to talk then about these very, I guess, critical and very specific things. What we need to prepare ourselves. Yes. Are we talking about simply legal stuff, or, or well, legal stuff is important. Um, I think it's really a good idea for almost all of us to have a will. I think it's an even more important idea for us to have a healthcare proxy, somebody who will be able to speak for us if and when we can't. doesn't mean we're dying, but in that moment we can't speak. Um, and that person needs to understand who we are and how we think. So if you appoint somebody to be your healthcare proxy and you don't talk with them about your wishes and the processes you hope they'll use, I think you're abusing them. It's such a heavy responsibility. So you, need so you have to, to, Susan, you have your will. That's number one. Is that the first thing you need to do whatever age you are? I would I mean. say the first thing you need is a healthcare proxy. Person who will speak for you. Second thing you need, uh, let's do four things you can get for free sitting in your kitchen in your pajamas. The healthcare proxy, the advanced directive, which says, if my doctors tell me I only have six months to live, here's what I want. Here are the choices. I want you to do everything. Pull out all the stops, use all the technology medicine has available, or no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to stop rescue care. I want you to do comfort care or, or whatever in between. I don't want to be intubated or I want to be intubated for up to five days if you think it's going to work and if it isn't working, stop. Whatever, whatever you think, you write it down because if you don't write it down, odds are you're going to get full bore. You're going to get everything. Okay. What about this? Let's say you have your health care proxy. You've designated uh-huh. a person you want to be in charge. Right. Uh, okay. The second thing is you have the advanced directive, uh-huh. you know, pull the plug, don't pull the plug. It depend, you know. Okay. That but is- those okay. things, and I, this is what I want you to, and let's say you do that at age 25, you just uh-huh. got married. But what happens, you get divorced at 30, so that husband or spouse or whoever, you don't want them to be the person who's in charge of your health care so proxy. That's the, the good and the advanced directive, what happens, and the second part of the question is that changes too, and sometimes yep. changes as you get, let's say if you get have a long-term illness and you decide, hmm, I don't want you to pull the plug. So you have to keep... Well, I'm going to let you answer it. How oh, no, you... Catherine, that's a really smart comment because you get stars on your chart for saying, A, I've done it. Yes, I've done it. But doing it doesn't mean you've done it for all time. You know, every decade, every divorce, every death, every critical illness, 
you need to go back and look again because you're right. Things change. What I wanted when I was 40 and had young children is quite different than what I think I want now at 70. Okay. Yeah, I think that's really important because I sometimes think that people very often, they'll do it and they'll say, okay, I did what Susan told me to do. I'm done. I'm not going to look at it again. No, you're not done. You're not done. But once you do it, I believe it's probably easier to do it again. Uh-huh. And there's one more, but you need, you really ought to have a financial power of attorney that says, if I can't pay my bills, here's the person who's able to pay them until I can pay them or I'm not here anymore. So those are, and, but now that's the paperwork. Do I think that's the most important? I don't know. That's pretty important. But I think the most important is to sit down and talk to the people you love. Well, I, you said that, and I think I think this is really a critical issue because when you start, let's say you do that and you're 50 years old and you have the, all of these things that you mentioned mm-hmm. and now you have grown children and you choose one to be your power, maybe you don't have a spouse or a partner. Right. I'm going to give you an, you know, right. just set up a scenario. So the, one of the children is, seems to be more responsible than the other, or maybe not necessarily more responsible, but more capable in your eyes of being able to handle the legality. So you choose that person. And you choose another kid to be the uh, you know, health care proxy the other right. way. That may set up, you know, a hornet's nest of sibling rivalry. How do you handle that? Well, I think if you don't choose, you're creating more of a hornet's nest. I think of a woman I know. I talk about this story in the book. A woman I know knew well um, who was in California, became critically ill, was in the hospital, and she had two daughters who loved her both a huge amount. One lived in Illinois, one lived in Pennsylvania, and they flew to their mother's bedside. And one stood on one side of the bed and yelled at the doctors, onward, onward, more, more. And the other stood on the other side of the bed and yelled, stop, stop, make my mother stop suffering. Then they would go home at night and they would scream at each other. And literally, over their mother's dead body, they stopped speaking to each other. I think their mother would have hated that more than the fact that she had to die. She had never talked with her daughters. She had never said, this is the one who was going to speak in my voice. So I think you, if you don't say, this is your responsibility, and this is what I want, and you're doing what I want, then you're liable to have people fight. They go, Dad wouldn't want that cheap coffin. He'd want an expensive coffin. And the other child says, no, we're not going to put him in that cheap piece of balsam. Would we? we have to honor our dad by spending X amount of money. And then the third kid says, oh, my God, Dad would have a heart attack if you spent that much money if he weren't already dead. Who's going to resolve that? It's your job to do now if you want to prevent. I, I believe that you can prevent a lot of disharmony. Yeah, maybe just, you can prevent, as you say, a lot more. You have a, the, the ability to prevent uh, a, a lot of this kind of power struggle and fighting if, if you make the decision beforehand. I don't think it alleviates all of it, but I think maybe people die how they live. You know, I always say people go through the, they divorce how they were married. Yep, live well, die well. Yeah. Don't get it right one way, you probably are going to have a difficult time. But, you know, I, I'll tell you my own story. When I, sort of a couple of years ago, all of the family was going to be in, Chris, in, in California around my birthday, which is in the summer. And I said to my two sons, who are you know, parents themselves, I'm going to make it easy for you. Let me tell you what I would like for my birthday. I would like us to all sit down at the dining room table, have a nice dinner with a bottle of wine, and then I want to talk about end of life with you. And they said, Mom, you're fine. We don't want to talk about that. Can't we just go buy you a book? (laughs) No, 
I really would like you to do this. You can bring your wives or you cannot bring your wives, but I'm asking you to do this. So they came to dinner. We had a nice dinner and a bottle of wine, and we went into the living room, and they were not eager to do this at all. We spent an hour, and at the end of the hour, they said, thank you. And I said to one son, Jonathan, you have my health care directive. You are my health care proxy because, Seth, you will never be able to pull the plug. But, Seth, you have my financial power of attorney because you're more organized around the paperwork. I hope that you'll support each other, but if you find you're in disagreement, nobody's being a bully here. This is my wish. You do this, and you do this. And do it the best you can, and if in retrospect you think you didn't get it completely right, let it go. You know, I'm listening to you, and you are an expert and well-spoken, and obviously you know what you're talking about. Do you think that the average person, let's say the average who's listening to the show, um, has the ability to be able to to do what you did with your two boys? I mean, some families don't talk about – they can't talk about living, let alone dying, or just simple issues around money is a difficult topic, even when it has to do with stuff that's positive. So – do we need counseling before we sit down and do well, this? You know, I, I, I can't answer that because I don't know who the average family is. And there maybe one. I'm not speaking to everybody, but that's why I wrote the book. I, I talk all the time to groups of people, and I see how they struggle and how difficult this topic can be. And I thought, and, and it's not that there aren't other books about death and dying. I, I talk about 20 of them in the book that I think are good. But I wanted something that said look, this isn't scary. Sometimes we can even laugh about this. We can break this down in small pieces. Here's a way to talk. I think there are six um, supplemental letters written by six very different kinds of people in different voices that tell their children what they think is important. Can we do it? I think we can give it a try. Can every family do it? Probably not. Do I think every family ought to think about whether they can do it? Yeah, I know it sounds bossy to say I do think that, but I do think that, Catherine. What if we have parents, let's say, another example, okay, um, who simply say, well, I'm not, we're not going to talk about death and dying. And the kids, the children know we need to talk about it. Maybe they're in their 50s, parents in their 80s, whatever. Yep. Yep. Something has to be done. How do you break, how do you get them to do what you're saying? Because then it is important, and death really is it's imminent. I mean, it's going to be, no matter how healthy they are. I listened to a, um, I don't know if she was a geriatric caseworker or a social worker on the radio a few years ago, and she, her father was in his 80s, and he was living alone in Florida, and she went down to have this very conversation with him, and he wouldn't have it. Every time she took a different tack, he'd say, the bagels are good here, aren't they? Do you want more cream cheese? <laughs> he just wouldn't go there. So we have to respect the people we love. If they don't want to go there, you can't make them go there. You shouldn't humiliate them or, or embarrass yourself. But I would say don't give up easily. And you might, instead of saying to our parents, I had to learn this from my mother. Instead of saying, you need to do this, my mother would say, you're not my mother. She was right. I'm not her mother. I found I, I could, we could get more common ground if I said, you have been such a good mother to me all these years. You've always done things to make my life easier. I have one more request of you that will help me make my life easier. Will you talk to me about these things? Now, her answer was no. <laughs> but, but 
I think that was such a, a great presentation. I mean, it really does. That's a, that's a wonderful way of approaching it. I mean, uh, and did she ever end up saying yes? No. I mean, she, my mother. My mother spent three years caught between being afraid to die and being afraid to live. <laughs> she, you know, when this when this odyssey began, she she went into a sort of coma-like state, and and she stayed at home, and we sort of didn't know what to do, and her wonderful physician said, we're not going to do anything. She was almost 93 at that point, and um, she sort of stayed in that state for like a day and a half, and then she came back, and what we said about her was, Mom went to the edge of the great beyond. She looked in and said, oh, it's not the Four Seasons. I'm not checking in. (laughs) And she came back, but it was... um, it was a it was a painful three years. I mean, you say my, uh, there was a quote here that says my ninety five year old mother failed out of hospice twice. Yeah, she had failure to fail. And she, but she ninety five years old. She lived a long life, right? She yes. was. Yeah. She was. She she led a long and good life, and she died on the cusp of ninety six. Actually, back in hospice for the third time. And I, I hope this doesn't sound grass or cold. But when my mother died, people said, I'm so sorry. And I thought to myself, I am not. It is her time. Well, I think that has to do with people's difficulty, just as you, this is what the book is about, about even discussing death. They don't know what to say, so they say stuff that's just not really appropriate to the, to the, you, to the situation, to the, you know, to, you know you, as you say, it was her time, 95 years old. Um, but that's why, I say books like mine, but, but books in general, why it's good to talk about it, read about it, listen on the radio about it. Because, I mean, I, I've never died. I, I don't know what it's like to die. I've had to learn by listening to other people. This group of women that meets every eight weeks or so and, and we talk is a teaching opportunity for all of us. Sometimes we laugh. Sometimes we cry. Sometimes we say, no, I don't think that's right. And we've all gotten better and more comfortable and wiser. And we like, this is really odd, but we like it. Uh, maybe you're just a group of odd ladies, but <laughs> uh, you're the co-founder of the Y Collaborative, whycollaborative.com for those of you who are interested, which is in Houston, Texas. So tell us about that, because that has to do with encouraging healthy people to talk about end of life and make end of life preparations. I'd love to. Okay. When When my mother first became ill and went into hospice care, one of my very good friends in the same situation with her father. His cardiologist had said he doesn't have six months to live, and he entered hospice care. Both of them failed out of hospice. My mother lived three more years. Her father lived five more years. And every couple of weeks, we would get together at our favorite sushi restaurant, and the conversation was always the same. Here's what we'd say. Oh, my gosh, I had no idea I didn't know what I didn't know. If I had known that, I would have made a better decision. So then we would make that decision, and we would go forward, and we would meet again, and we'd be back to saying, oh, I didn't know anything about this. After this went on for a couple of years, I looked at Nancy, and I said, you know, our parents are going to die pretty soon. We're next up. We better figure this out for ourselves. And the Y Collaborative was born from those conversations. I I know it's an odd name, but here's why we call it Y Collaborative. Y is next to the end in the alphabet, but not quite there. If you look at it, it's a decision tree, and if you listen to it, it's a question. So uh, all the forms that you need can be downloaded on that site. There are blogs. 
I actually sold my share of the business to Nancy last year, but we still remain very good friends and, and work on the site together. So I encourage people to look. Why Collaborative? You can go to whycollaborative.com. I mean, that makes it very easy. It's on the net. Um, we have no excuses, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and why is the letter, not the word? Why, yeah, why is the letter? Why? Because, it's, as you said, it's not the last letter, it's not the Z, but it's the Y. <laughs> so uh, the Y Collaborative. How did you get interested in all of this? I mean, where did you – I mean, you are a life coach. You have a Ph.D. Do you have a Ph.D. in psychology? In public policy. In public, oh, in public policy, okay. So, uh, you know, how, what's the evolution of getting into this, this uh, you know, I seem, topic? I, I seem to be interested in what I need to learn. You know, my first book was about family traditions because I had young children and we were isolated from our extended family and I needed to figure out how to sort of give them technicolor memories. And then I wrote about kid fun activities, and then I wrote about getting through high school, and then I wrote a book called The Mother-in-Law's Manual, and then I wrote a book about retirement. Well, this is the stage that I'm headed to. I, I need to know this. Um, it's what's next up for me, and I'm not going to have children anymore, and I'm already a mother-in-law, and I've already retired. <laughs> so, and, and my so you write writer, about what you know. I write, no, I write about what I don't know. What you don't know so that you will be prepared. Okay, yes. go ahead. Yeah. I, I love doing the... Just, just as what you're doing. I love doing the interviews. People teach me, you know, they teach me so much because I'm smart, but I'm not that smart. Um, and also watching my mother was so instrumental, seeing how um, how lost I was, how emotionally confused I was, how difficult it was to navigate with her and for her. So I didn't, I didn't want to be there myself, and I didn't want my children to be there either. You know, you are very wise, and I've had the experience, actually the opposite experience that you had with your mother, and I had a, my father died at a very young age of congestive heart failure, and he died, he was 66 years old. So oh, that's young. Yeah, but he was prepared, he was dying, it wasn't unexpected, and he was, uh, he was an attorney, and so he had everything in order to the point of where he, he, you know, he had a packet when he died, this is what you do, the number you call, the estate attorney, I mean, he, he every you know, detail, and it and it really goes along with what you're saying because it did make everything easier yeah. for my mother. It was a huge gift for your mother, wasn't it? Yeah. And I should tell people, I should tell you, the, there are four appendices in the book. They're not very long, but the last one is a URL to something called the Croak Book. The Croak Book was put together by, by my uber-organized engineer cousin, Jim Steinbeck, who did this for a group of couples he meets with. It's templates for all of this data. You can just go there, open it up, print it out, or type it in, and take advantage of his incredible organization. I'm not nearly that organized, but it's a gift that he's given to all of us, and you can just go find it. So this is croak, as in croaking, dying? Yes. C-R-O-A-K, is that how you spell it? Yes. So the whole family is obsessed with it. You have to get the URL from the back of the book. It's not... It's it's not available. It's on my website, but it's hidden unless you have the right code. Do you have any examples, like really horrendous examples? Because I think people have to hear that side of it, too, where people were totally, not that they were unprepared for dying necessarily, but they decided not to do anything about it and some of the real, you know, the, the consequences of that. Well. Horrendous consequences are, of that. There are 
there are so many stories of pain and suffering. I'll tell you one that upsets me. This is a, a man who's an acquaintance of mine who maybe it was four years ago now was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he was very fortunate. He, he lived in a city with great health care, university medical center. He had surgery and he came out of it in pretty good shape. And he had two good years and then pancreatic cancer came back. He came here to Houston. He lives in St. Louis. He came here to Houston um, to MD Anderson and went through chemo, radiation, I don't know, but it made him very sick. He lost weight. He couldn't eat. It was really a painful time. He wasn't living. He wasn't dying, but he wasn't living. Finally, his doctor here said, that's it. There's nothing else we can do. You're done. You really had a very good result for somebody with pancreatic cancer, but we're finished. He had moved to another city in Texas where his children were by this time, and his family was not ready to give up. They shopped all over the city until they finally found a surgeon who was willing to keep treating him. That man is still alive. I, for me, I can't speak for him, of course. What he has endured, I'm not sure I would call living. It's been very painful, and you and I and everybody else listening has paid for it. How many years has this been? Um, this last bit since he was told he was done is not quite a year, I think. So those are decisions. I, I'm not saying that what he's doing, maybe I am saying, I don't know that it's wrong. Each of us has to choose for ourselves. I can't tell other people what to do, but... But I have, you know, you, I, you, I hear you saying people have to choose for themselves. And I've come to kind of a, I don't know, kind of a realization that perhaps we're not choosing for ourselves. And I'll, I'll give you an example. My best friend who, uh, since I was nine years old, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in uh, December of, what, 2000, a year and a half ago. And they... It was stage three or stage four, and it was not a good prognosis. So she began chemotherapy, and uh -huh. it was horrific. I mean, I, I sit here. I have emails from her going through each time she had chemo. It was painful. It was horrific. She felt she didn't want to go out of the house for all kinds of reasons, and they took out uh, every organ they could. And they, they, I think the medical staff, the doctors, they provided her with some kind of false hope. So that she spent, she eventually, she died last year in June. And during those six months of treatment, it was the most horrific last six months. And I, you know, I was in hospice with her when she died and was there for three or four days with her sister and other friends. And I thought, is this the way to end your last six months of your life? Well, and, that's, and was, that's they, the right question. Yeah. You know, I would say, I do say, there are worse things than dying. And she may have endured some of them. So in, in the case of this man that I'm telling you about... But they weren't honest with her. His, well, I don't. his physicians have been honest. It's that his family, deeply religious, believes in miracles. They believe that God will prevail. And they urge him on. They, they cannot say to him, we love you, and if you need to die, we will be here with you. They say, no, you have to get more treatment. You need to do more. You need to do more. Um, that's born of fear, but it's foolish fear because, you know, we all do die. Everybody who's listening to your radio program, that's the one thing we all have in common. 
torturing somebody. Which you're, well, what my I think my example and the example you're giving. Is so really those, are, those are horrific. Yeah, those are horrific. I think equally horrific is when somebody dies unexpectedly, and perhaps he has children from a former marriage and children in this marriage, and he's living with a. Let's say that he he's living with a partner that he hasn't formally married, but they've been together for twelve years, and he's done nothing. He has no paperwork. He has no will. He. That's pretty chaotic. And that's probably going to become more of the norm because people have more than one marriage and or living with somebody, uh, kids from different relationships. I think that's increasing rather than decreasing. So what you're saying, it becomes even more important, or you do end up with all kinds of not just medical, financial, tax, everything, uh, kinds of of issues that uh, can take years to straighten out. Yep, it's a mess, and it's an expensive mess. Yeah, and, and expensive, and I think it's relationships often end or they get damaged and, yep. and people don't aren't able to connect. So in the book, though, you say reflect, you have 20 questions, very specific questions. Um, do we want to talk about the specific questions or ones that we haven't addressed yet? Well, some of them are reflective, like why should we think about dying when we're so busy living? And some of them are very practical, like why do we need a will right now? So there's this balance. In order to sort of deal with the practical, perhaps we have to spend a little bit of time being reflective. What do I, I, you know, the question is... I think we're we're going to take a break now. Okay. Okay, Okay. because that's a good one. I think that's, we have to talk about being reflective. So when we come back, we're going to talk about that. Okay. Uh, Okay. And uh, I'm with talking right now to Susan Abel Lieberman, Ph.D., her new book, Death, Dying, and Dessert, and uh, Reflections on 20 Questions About Dying, and we're going to get into some of these 20 questions. We've talked about some so far. I'm Catherine Zott, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Why do most women who are actively dating have to know what will the future hold? While for many types of guys it just means what's going to happen tonight? The Dating Revolution is a new kind of show about dating. It's not necessarily about finding Mr. Right. It's more about staying in control of what you want and having fun while dating. Your host, Heather Jones, is a casual dating expert and will provide the tips and tricks both women and men need to navigate the ever-changing world of dating. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And this morning I'm talking to Susan Abel Lieberman, Ph.D., about her book, her new book, Death, Dying, and Dessert, Reflections on 20 Questions About Dying. Uh, so if you're just joining us, you've missed a lot, but 
you know, we have lots more to talk about. So, Susan, we're getting into the 20 questions or some of them. They're very specific about wills and things that one needs to do. But also, you before we took the break, we said, okay, reflections. We have to reflect. What, what are we talking about here in that question? So uh, the first question that I ask is, why is dying important when we're so busy living? And, and we've talked a little about that. It's important because it's out there, and you don't know when it's going to rear its unfortunate head. And that's the second question. When is it time to think about dying? The answer is three letters. Now. <laughs> Wherever you are, right now. Don't put it off. Just do it and, and be done with it. So what I say in the book, and I believe this, is denial is fine. If you want to be in denial, that makes perfect sense. Just step out of denial long enough to get organized, have some conversations, put some paperwork in place, and then go right back to denial, eat chocolate, make love, play golf, you know, until it's time to do it again. So just incorporate it into your life. Don't make it something different and separate. This is just part of what we do in the process of living. You know, I know some people are very impulsive about their decisions, but when I was young, much younger, and I was thinking that I wanted to get married, so I thought about, well, what qualities do I want in the man that I'm going to marry? And I dated lots of people, and I sort of thought about who I thought would make a good husband. And when I had children... I went out and got books, and I talked to other parents and thought, well, how do I want to raise my children? When I needed to buy a house, I looked at a lot of houses. Now, you only get to die once. You're not going to be graded, so it doesn't matter whether you get 100% or not. But wouldn't it be nice if you could do it without so much fear and stress and you could not make it so awful for the people who love you? Sort of just invest a little time in thinking about it and finding out about what is hospice, what is palliative care, and then... You know, and then you're done. Well, what about coming to terms with our own mortality? I think that's the piece that we don't want to do, like that I'm not going to be here. I'm preparing for not being here anymore. And that's the piece that I think keeps people into denial or not wanting to deal with it. Like buying a new house, okay, I might make a mistake, well, I'll sell it and I'll buy another one. But and Or a new car or, you know, the stuff that makes us anxious or can make us anxious. But this is like saying... This is it. I don't want to think about me not being here anymore. So you have to kind of get over that, don't you? I, I so understand that. Sometimes when I think about this, I go, how will the world get along without me to supervise? <laughs> Could the sun really come up if I'm not here? I think about that too, Susan. I actually think I'm walking down the street. These people, are going to, if I die today, they're still going to go on their vacation tomorrow. They're going to Disney World. Well, they're going to get up and they're going to, without me, how can they? Okay, but here, that's the reality check. No matter what you think. You will die. So, so here's what I would say about that. Go do this stuff and then pretend that it won't matter. It's like buying insurance. When you buy fire insurance for your house, you're not really thinking the house is going to burn down. You're really buying the insurance so that the house doesn't burn down, aren't you? When you buy insurance for your car, it's, you're really not believing that you're going to have a big wreck. But you buy it anyway. It's like a little talisman. So go do this. And then believe that you're never going to need it. I think that's the best analogy, or that's the easiest one, because it makes us, okay, right, yeah, I don't expect my house to burn down or have a flood or tornado or whatever it's going to be, although it could happen, but not really. So, yeah, that's a, I think that's a good example. But we do those things. Well, we do it. Yeah, we do do that, which is good. A friend of mine, I'm not a psychologist, but a friend of mine who is has a great line. He said, you might not be thinking about death, but I assure you death is thinking about you. <laughs> What about hospice? You mentioned hospice because I was just reading, you know, people think of hospice, just hospice is all the same, but hospice isn't necessarily all the same thing. 
it, it's kind of a generic term in a way. Should oh, we talk? Smart. You're yeah. smart. That's so true. First of all, I'm, I'm in Houston. I think we have 52 different hospices here in Houston. And we have lots of hospitals. And we have, you know, I don't know, thousands of doctors. Some are great. Some are average. And some you really want to spend time with. And I think that's true for hospices, too. I tend to favor not-for-profit hospices over for-profit hospices, but you need to to get a little handle on where would you want to go because when you need a hospice, sometimes you need it quickly, and you're not in a good position to go hospice visiting. So, And even before that, we got to understand what hospice is. Um, A woman who used to work for my husband's mother became very ill, and it was clear that she was dying. She had lung cancer, and, and... she was dying. They didn't want to put her in hospice because they thought it represented giving up, and they didn't want their mother to think that they were giving up on her. In fact, people who go into hospice programs generally live longer than people who have the same medical conditions who are not in hospice. So rescue care is very hard on you. When Doctors are doing experimental, but you talked about your friend, experimental this and experimental that and more treatment. It's painful. It's not a good way to die hooked up in an ICU. Um, Hospice is about comfort care, comfort for the patient and comfort for the family. It's not giving up. It's putting the emphasis in a different place. And hospice can be in the hospital or in your own home. Yes. Hospice care. Mainly, hospice is in your own home. It's meant to be in your own home. And this is both the gift of hospice and it's a problem with hospice. Let's say um, you're an 85-year-old woman married to a 92-year-old man who is dying and has entered hospice care, and you don't have a lot of money. Hospice will send someone every day for an hour, but they don't provide full-time care. If you don't have family and you don't have a support system, and you're not able to hire anybody, you have to change that person's diaper and turn them and feed them and help them, and you yourself are not in such good shape. That's a problem. That's a problem. So there are some nursing homes that have hospice wings. There's some complicated financial issues around this because hospice is paid for by Medicare, but Medicare doesn't pay for nursing homes. It doesn't pay for sleeping in a bed. So you have to be careful if you're switching from one category to another. But My friend was in a hospice in a hospital, a small hospital, but there was a wing, as you're saying, they have in nursing homes, that was a hospice. So she was in the hospice part of the hospital. And that was perfect for her. Uh Yeah, that was perfect. And, And she didn't have to have family to provide that kind of care. So she was in a fortunate situation. In some ways, but in other ways... I mean, no, I mean, her... <laughs> and I think this, you know, which we talked about earlier, and, and just this prolonging life, even when it's painful or torturous, I think this, to me, there's some ethical issues involved in that, but... Well, that, that's why it's good to think about this in advance. So here's something I, I talk about in the book. Um, the doctor says to you, you know, we have a new medical procedure, and it can increase your life expectancy by 50%. For this illness. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But if your life expectancy is two months and it can increase it by 50% and you're going to be in pain for that extra month, 
you might want to think very carefully about whether that's the right choice. Or we can do this procedure and we can um, battle back this cancer for, I don't know, a little bit. Say, oh, okay, we'll battle back the cancer. I'll go back to playing tennis. Well, you need to ask. After you battle it back, what kind of shape am I going to be in? Maybe not the kind of shape that you imagined. So asking the right questions is is challenging, and you've got to think about it beforehand because when you're sitting there in the doctor's office hearing this difficult news, your sort of brain gets a little mushy, and you go to what freeze flight flight what was it? <laughs> Help me out here. Fight, fight, flight, or freeze. Right. Fight, um, flight, or freeze. Difficult to say. And it's hard to sort of be rational and get all those good questions into your brain and out of your mouth. We're so careful, I think, you know, just as a culture, to be prepared. I mean, that's our motto. But when it comes to this, we're not prepared. And as you say, we just get ourselves that we are so vulnerable. Not, and not only are we vulnerable, but everybody who we say we do have support, but our kids, our family, everybody else is vulnerable, too. So you everybody. don't tend to make the best decisions under those crisis situations. Yep. And that was my experience with my mother and Nancy with her father. We just we didn't know what we were doing. Um, Jane Gross, who was a New York was a New York Times reporter, has written a wonderful book called um, Bittersweet Bittersweet Season. I think Bittersweet Season. Bittersweet, yeah. It was about her mother suddenly becoming ill, and she knew she was a really good investigative journalist. Her brother was a journalist, and they went into full take charge mode, and they quickly made decisions. And they found they made bad decisions because they didn't really know what they were doing, even though they're incredibly bright and thoughtful and able to ask good questions. But the questions you ask depend on the information you have that helps you shape the question. And don't you also think, Susan, that they're as we go along, even day by day, there are more choices. So maybe 20 or 30 years ago, even when you were diagnosed with cancer or some terminal illness, there weren't as many choices to even make. Yep. Yep. So now we're not only are we diagnosed with this maybe horrific illness or something happens very quickly, um, you know, whether it's an accident uh, or something like that, but there are just so many choices. I mean, you know, from hospice to home care to who's going to pay for it to different kinds of medical treatment, that you know, and many choices, even many hospitals to go to. I mean, you don't necessarily are, going, are not necessarily going to the hospital in your own hometown that's right. going to treat you. Right. You mentioned MD, MD uh, Anderson, Anderson Center, yeah. you know, and this Memorial Sloan Kettering, and you want to go to a top cancer hospital. I mean, there's, so there's all of that, too, that comes into play. So here's some really good advice that I, that I heard from other people that's in the book. If, unless you need immediate treatment, you have to do something immediately, the first best thing to do when you get bad news is breathe, <laughs> and then breathe again, and then go home and try and... You won't get a good night's sleep, but do the best you can. Start figuring it out. Talk to the people who care about you. Talk to the people you respect. You don't have to jump into a decision immediately because probably your brain isn't functioning too well in that moment anyway. Breathe, breathe, breathe. And then breathe again. And then breathe again yep. if you can. Yep. What do you say to people, I, 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 you know, you gave the example in the beginning when you go to a social, or I gave the example that you give, you go to a social gathering and people ask you what you do and you say, you know, oh, I death and dying and then, well, oh, that's nice and they walk away. So 
even in a social situation, even when it doesn't involve them personally, people have difficulty talking about death and dying. They do. They do. I mean, they, they say, oh, I've got to go get another glass of wine, or isn't that interesting? And they, and they vanish. Or sometimes they say, oh, well, tell me more. <laughs> it's like, oh, you really don't want to put that quarter in me. You will regret this. <laughs> But maybe not. I'm sure there are many who are glad that they spoke to you at the party. With a co- and you know what better place to do it with a glass of wine? Yeah, you know, maybe parties probably are not my best venue. But <laughs> I, I, I so am fascinated by all there is to learn and understand. And, you know, I've been doing this for, I don't know, over four years. And I feel like I'm a beginner in many ways. So um, there's so much to say. And it's hard to know where to begin. How do the doctors respond to you? What the medical community? I don't necessarily find them, and I'm not, certainly not trying to bash, bash the medical community, but they're not necessarily good about talking about death, dying, and desert, you know, either. And do they bring that up with their patients? And maybe shouldn't they? And maybe so, medical? This kind of thing needs to be taught in medical school. How to? I mean, they do, you know, delivering bad news to patients. I used to train medical students at Albany Med um, as a um, a patient. Uh, you know, a simulated patient. Um, Was and, that interesting? Yeah, very. And they, they, these programs are all around the country now, yeah. actually. I think they're a requirement in order to graduate from medical school, but uh, the medical students had, that was the most difficult case that they had to deal with, like yep. telling you that you had metastatic cancer, or, and most of them were not, I mean, they were only students, but didn't do well. So doctors are trained to rescue. That's what they do. They want to rescue people from illness, and that's how they are judged and rewarded. It's also how they are financially rewarded. The rescue system is what the medical system is about, and hospice is an alternative system that's not about rescue. It says when we no longer believe that rescue is possible for us or for anybody, then we switch to a different system. But doctors are just like the rest of us. They often feel that death is something to fear. Death makes them feel that they failed. I I, I was supposed to save you, and I didn't. So it's hard for them. I think in some ways, some of the things I've read suggest that people are attracted to medicine because they, too, are afraid of death. Maybe there needs to be, a, a in addition to the physician, there needs to be another expert who works in the practice, ideally, who can, if, if someone is diagnosed with a, a terminal illness, or uh, that they can uh, talk to and have the opportunity to talk to. I mean, lawyers go, have to, there are lawyers who specialize in estate, a trust in the state, they have to talk about death and dying all the time. Well, that's true. And we do now have palliative care physicians who work as a team, usually, who are trained to have these conversations. We have geriatric physicians who are, I mean, you don't have to be old to be facing death, as you pointed out earlier. Um, And there is more work going on. It's just slow and hard because it's difficult. It's just difficult. So what I'm saying is, you know, I'm I'm old. I'm 70. I, I can't wait for the doctors to get trained or retrained. It's my job to make it easier for them to have the conversation by introducing it. It's my job to say to them, look, if you find that I have a terminal illness, I hope that you will just tell me. I hope you won't be too blunt or too rude, but I hope you will be completely honest in as gentle a way as you can. And then we'll work together to figure out what the right thing is. So well, 
You're the perfect patient. Uh, I'm the what? You're the, I was going to say, you're the perfect patient or the ideal patient? Well, that's probably true because I think about this and talk about it all the time. But um, honestly, take the book and give it to your doctor and say, I've read this and this says things that I believe or I've underlined the things in this book that I don't believe. Don't ever do this. I can't tell you that the doctor's going to take time to read it, but whatever, you know, find an article, write him a note. This is not, I can't guarantee success, but whatever you can do that gets you closer to getting what you want, it's worth a try. Yeah, this opens the door, and I think your book helps, it opens the door to just begin to talk about death and dying. Um, and to at least become aware that this is a, just start with becoming aware. Yeah, this is a topic, this is something you need to do, even just to be responsible. Just, you know, just, to, just and, to get the word dying or death out of your mouth. I mean, look at the language in obituaries. I've been thinking about this a lot. So interesting. He battled valiantly against cancer. She waged a courageous war against her emphysema. It's the language of war. And in war, we have winners and losers. But but who are we worrying against? The disease is inside us. So, yes, we want to do the best we can to be strong and healthy and, and do what's necessary. And sometimes we have to go through really painful, difficult treatment to come out the other end. But death is not an external force. It it came packaged, factory-ready in us the moment we were born. Well, it makes us, we think, I think, and language is really important here. I agree yeah. with you. We externalize the whole thing. It's, it's, uh, it's out there. And it's so, you know, I don't have anything, to, uh, you know, it's, not, it's out there. It's external. It's not internal. And I think another wording that, that always gets to me is we can't say that, and I actually told one of my kids, I said, when you put my obituary in, I said, make sure you do the, my resume, the correct one. But besides that, I said, please say that I died. Do not, oh, yes. I, not that I passed on or that so I... you went I, to meet your maker or uh, you yeah, below the daisies. I meant to meet God or whoever I went to meet. But please, just say that I died because I really... And I, I see all these euphemisms for... For, for dying, not even being able to, to write the word or have it, you know, published in the newspaper. I'm, I'm with you. I, I think that language is important, and language shapes our, our ideas and our thoughts. So if we can say these difficult words, then maybe we can think these difficult thoughts. And I don't know. You know, I spoke two weeks ago, I guess, to a, a, a Buddhist group. and There were like 90 people there. It was a panel of four people. And one of the speakers was a, a lama who talked about how when you die, a hole opens in the top of your head and your spirit goes up and here's what happens and it's three days for this and six days for that. It, it was just all new to me and I didn't quite Get understand it, it all. <laughs> but he said to the audience, how many of you believe you will have, have a hole in the top of your head? And about 90% of the audience raised its hands. Were they all Buddhist? I think they were mainly all Buddhist, yes. I mean, maybe they weren't all Buddhist, but... They were believers. I think they were, you know, that's how they got there. And then also in the panel was a physician who primarily works with AIDS patients. And he said to them, how many of you have an advanced directive? And nine people raised their hands. So I went, oh, I think they really do have a hole in their head. And they let little good sense creep out. It's fine to have any vision of death that you want. I mean, and I say in the book, bow and bend to any person, spirit, belief that you want. It doesn't matter. 
what matters is that it gives you comfort and gives you satisfaction. But and and I don't know what happens after we die. Whether God is waiting, God is not waiting. God is a she. God is a he. But I do know that the court is waiting, and that God is not going to take care of writing a will for you. I, I think that's well said because that is a given, right? I, it's just the culture we live in. So, are there other cultures? Are there other in, do, that do um, better than we uh, when it comes to death, dying, and dessert? Well, I don't know. We do pretty well on the dessert. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the French do better on the dessert. The literature, I, I've only mainly, I mean, I've traveled, but I've only lived in this culture. But the literature tells us that, yes, other cultures do much better. Asian cultures are much more comfortable talking about death and dying. Um, we are particularly, we have particularly sanitized death. Um, people, we don't see people die. Eighty percent of people die in the hospital, even though 50 percent want to die at home. Um, and we don't say, as you said, we don't say, I died, or she died, or he died. We say, they passed on. Well, where have they passed on to? I don't know. So if we're sanitizing, I'm, I'm thinking about that. We Well, we do that at our funerals. We don't have real grass. We have fake grass. We have all these kinds of things that supposedly soften the idea that you're being Buried. But, but you know, that's another reason I think that death is so unappealing because most funerals I've been to are really dreary. I, I, I love to eat. I love good restaurants. So I've joked with my family that when it's time for me to die, I would like to be laid out in arugula at the best French restaurant in town. <laughs> Wasn't there a movie about that? In arugula? I missed that one, but I need to see it. No, it wasn't, in, but it was a movie where they had the, per, I mean, it was kind of bizarre. The person was laid out on a, with food on top of them on a, on a kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that, but, but you know, I, I, I would like an old-fashioned wake. I'd like people to tell stories about me and laugh. And now, this is because I've, I've had the good fortune to have a good life, and I don't feel that, you know, it will be. I mean, it's always too soon, but it's not that much too soon now. But it, it, it shouldn't be dreary. It shouldn't be dreary. I haven't led a dreary life, and I don't want to have a dreary death. Yeah, and how does your husband feel about it? Well, it's interesting. My husband is a pathologist. Oh, you are so well-matched. No, no, no. <laughs> no. My husband never wanted to discuss this. I'm writing my supplemental letter, and I said to him, you know, what about you? But as I've talked more and written more, and he's come to hear me speak, and he's really changed. He's much more articulate, much more open, much more thoughtful. He's written his own letter, not because he's a pathologist, because he's been exposed to all of this, you know? These women come to my house and sit at the dining room table talking about death and dying, and he's up in his study, and he can't help but hearing some of it. <laughs> so he's he he was he was behind me on this um, because he's a physician and he doesn't do death. He does science. He does rescue. He does medicine. He doesn't do death. What so, do you guys do for fun? <laughs> what you you know we we laugh. We say we live in a verb garden. We're both. He's retired now and he writes poetry and fiction. Um, and our children go, all you do is read and write and eat. We go, yeah, that's probably true. Sometimes we exercise. <laughs> we're, we're, 
we're boring. I think we're boring to other people. We're not boring to each other. Yeah, well, it doesn't sound like you're boring, and it doesn't sound like he's boring or you're boring. Uh, I mean, um, just well, I mean, you just finished writing a book. Uh, do we get through? I mean, we're talking about. I hate to keep going back to the twenty questions necessarily, but have we? Because we only have a few minutes left. Which ones? I mean, have we? I just want to make sure. Okay, that we so own... we haven't asked one of my favorite questions. Okay, then what is it? Can death be funny? All right. Can death be funny? Yes. Yes. How? Well, here's an example. A friend of mine's daughter had, oh, now I've just blocked them, this operation where you have to be in isolation. They take out your cells and they replace them. Bone marrow cancer. Bone marrow, yeah. Um, so she went. She was living in New York and she went through this horrible ordeal and she came out the other end and she went back to work. And some months later, she found that the cancer was not cured and that she was going to die. And she came home to Houston to die. And it was a slow and painful process. And her mother says that one morning she dragged herself down to the kitchen table and she looked at her mother and she said, you know, dying sucks, but I guess somebody's got to do it. <laughs> so we can't make jokes about other people, but yes, we can make jokes about ourselves. And uh, I talk in the book about... Um, emergency medical technicians, the way they get through all of these horrific experiences is with black humor. It, it lightens the moment. It relieves the tension. We need, I would, we talked about this earlier in the show, laughter is a very good medicine that you don't need anybody to pay for. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, I used to, uh, and did hospital social work, and, and uh, it was in the days of Kubler-Ross, and we had a death and dying committee, which they used to announce over the hospital. <laughs> that's funny. It was very funny. But the only people, it would be the social workers. The nurses didn't have the same kind of sense of humor, I think, as the social workers did, because we would be hysterical. I mean, we're having a death and dying committee, and, of course, it's blasting out over the, the loudspeaker. But um, you're right, and, and, but you'd have to walk out of there, and you'd have to laugh. I think, you know, because, obviously, I mean, there were some very tense times with some of these patients. Because otherwise stuff. you weep. Yeah. And, and um, sometimes you have to weep, but sometimes it's better to laugh. We did this in hospice. I mean, my when we were when my friend last summer was dying, and we're around, we're sitting around the bed, and it was a group of women, and her sisters and her friends, and we were drinking a bottle of wine, and we were joking and laughing with my friend, and I, I think she heard us. She couldn't respond, but I think the last thing to go is your hearing, and uh, or so they say, and um, so we were. Yes, kind of, you were you were present with warmth and love and affection and the things you did in life. Exactly. You know, if, exactly. If, if you were sitting on my bed and I was the person who was dying and I could speak, my comment would be, oh, I guess I don't have to diet anymore. <laughs> and we're going to, that's the last comment for today. Will you we tell them where they can find the book? Yep. Go ahead. At my website, www.susanlieberman.com or at Amazon. And, um, if you like it, drop me a note. It would mean a lot. Terrific. That's great. And I'm going to mention the book again, Death, Dying, and Dessert. Susan Abel Lieberman, Ph.D. Thanks so much for talking to me this morning. It was my pleasure. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. 
Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 